Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Today, we'll be talking to Casey Walker about his story, Vigilancia, which appears in issue 20 of The Common. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Casey Walker is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and has a PhD in English literature from Princeton University. He is the author of the novel Last Days in Shanghai. His writing has appeared in The Believer, Boston Review, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. He is currently finishing a new novel, Mexicali, exploring the history of the Mexican-American borderlands where he was born and raised. Casey Walker, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. It's great. Would you set the scene for this conversation? Tell us where you're calling from, where you're living? Yeah. uh, So currently I'm in Portland, Oregon, um, which uh, is, is digging its way out of a big snowstorm and ice storm that we had uh, last week. So I think power now has been restored to almost everyone uh, in the city. And that's usually, we're usually good for about one big snowstorm a year, but this one was um, kind of a major freak out. We had, I think, something like half the city had lost power at one point. Usually it's a very nice place to live. <laughs> that's It sounds good. And I'm glad you have power and you yeah. dug out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Would you start us off with a reading from your story, maybe the first few paragraphs? Absolutely. Um, So the story is called uh, Vigilancia. The secret police, people said, but this was a label M never understood. Everyone knows we exist, he thought, and of course we are not secret to ourselves. From whom is this secret kept? Couples filled the Café Suiza, no longer the solitary man of before the war. From the rack of newspapers, they never chose the copies of Usekilo. They spoke anything but Portuguese, French and English, German, Slavic languages he could barely identify. M observed their necklaces, their rings. Some were Jews of the merchant classes, shaken from the rest of Europe, men wearing one last suit of shabby clothes and bartering away the family jewelry. Other patrons were no doubt spies for the Allied or Axis agencies. There was a painter at a nearby table, his canvases at his feet, rolled up and tied with twine. He drank tea with his dowager patron, who still wore her better dresses. The world had come to Lisbon, M thought, something that had not been true for 400 years. It was a chambermaid M was waiting on, from the Hotel Frankfurt. Among the rooms the maid serviced, there lived an old French couple registered under a false surname. The German security services had requested the PVDE make immediate delivery of that pair. The Reich believed the couple were financiers of the French resistance who'd slipped through Bordeaux with forged papers. Thanks for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you just describe briefly what the piece is about? Yeah, so the story takes place um, in kind of World War II era Portugal um, and just the, the kind of basic kind of geopolitical history that that rests on. I mean, Portugal was neutral um, in, uh, in World War II, and it kind of acted as this very strange kind of hinge point um, between Allied and Axis powers. Um, that it was a very fraught sort of neutrality, um, and you got the sense that the Portuguese um, dictator at the time, Salazar, um, was sort of trying his best to sort of play both sides of this um, and, and being wooed in way in various ways by both sides. So Lisbon at this time is a neutral city um, while this war is um, ravaging Europe. And it becomes this kind of, um, it becomes this place that's full of refugees and spies and military intelligence. And there's obviously this kind of the secret police of the Portuguese dictatorship. Um, and 
in a way, it, it becomes this very interesting um, Milo in that in that sense. I mean, if you if you've seen the movie um, Casablanca, there's a kind of famous plot point in Casablanca about trying to get transit papers to get to and um, out of Lisbon. So it was a it was a place of embarkation for a lot of people um, trying to get out of uh, war torn Europe. So there was just like this immense um, kind of subterfuge that's happening. And that's the kind of the, the, the background um, for the story. That's great. And um, would you describe a little bit about M just so people know who we're talking about? <laughs> right. So M, uh, the figure who's, who's um, the kind of central figure of the, of the story is um, he's more or less an informant um, for the Portuguese secret police, um, which at the time was called the um, the PVDE, um, and, and later becomes the the P Day is what you often hear them um, called. But he's he's more or less a, uh, um, one of this endless um, kind of series of um, informal kind of informant figures who's selling information to various. Um, uh, higher ups in this agency and in a way just trying to like carve out his own particular living um, in this, uh, in this place of subterfuge and espionage. Yes. Yeah. And he's, he's using the, the chambermaid as sort of a, a, a another informant if he can get her to. Oh, right. I mean, this, the is, informant. this is essentially how he makes his living um, is, is kind of collecting this information from, um, people and seeing what's usable. I mean, sort of like a scrap merchant in that way, sort of seeing what's <laughs> usable to sell and what you can um, sell back. And, and it involves him in this way, um, encountering this um, encountering this chambermaid who he believes has information uh, about this couple staying in the hotel. Um, and then you learn after the section that I just read, I mean, within the first page or so, um, the the kind of, you know, instigating point here for him um, is that he he re- he figures out that he recognizes this chambermaid from his childhood. That he's somebody who grew up in a nearby village, um, and he hasn't seen her in 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 decades. Um, but he's certain that it's her. So it sort of complicates this. Um, you know, he's it complicates his um, ability to get information out of her because he now is contending with this kind of history of his, his memories of her as well. That's great. Would you, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say this piece is not autobiographical. <laughs> um, so could you tell us just like how you came to write it? Like, was there a specific inspiration or something that brought you to this sort of time and place? Yeah, it's true. I do have to admit up front that I never was an agent for the secret police in Portugal <laughs> um, in World War II. Um, you know, I think the, the, what it grew out of um, was, you know, quite simply just Lisbon itself. Um, so my mom's side of the family um, is Portuguese. Um, they've been in the United States a long time, but that that side of the family, there's still a fairly big um, kind of contingent of uh, Portuguese um, in the kind of Sacramento area. And I grew up um, you know, visiting them and seeing that. I, I first went to Portugal 2010, um, and I was with my mom, and we kind of went on this search for some long lost relatives. And that was the first time I had seen Lisbon. Um, I went back in 2016 as part of the disquiet um, conference on a, on a fellowship that they have specifically for people of um, kind of Luso descent. Um, And it was just being, it was really being there in in 2016 and being able to be there for an extended period of time and meet um, all of these Portuguese writers um, and just be in Lisbon in what felt to me like a very deep and privileged way. Um, that I had started thinking about um, this story. And uh, I mean, I, I tend to do a lot of reading about places that I'm going to travel to and places that I'm going to visit. So in the run-up to going back to Lisbon, um, I had read histories of Lisbon and I was reading novels set in Lisbon. And, um, you know, it's hard to say exactly. It's, it's been several years now what exactly um, uh, what exactly the kind of the first inciting moment for this story was. But um, reading about that uh, Portugal's very complicated neutrality in World War II made me think that there was really something um, 
there was really something there because you had so many people in such deep states of conflicted loyalty um, that it seemed to me that there had to be just a lot of narrative possibility there. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much sort of innate conflict in that, that kind of setting and in that time. Yeah. I also think there's just something so nice about, um, you know, I, I'm writing about World War II as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know like it is such a, a an overtold story in some ways yeah. that we all know so much about it yeah. that whenever you hit on these aspects of it that are sort of lesser known, I think that's always just like really fascinating because you don't have to tell, you don't have to tell the reader a whole lot because they have, they, they instantly know the context. You know, you say, you say allies, you say axis, right. You say the right, Reich, like people know immediately what you're talking about and all the emotional conflict that comes with that. And so you can just play in that space and you don't have to sort of create it yourself. I think I, I think that's totally right. I mean, people at least have that thumbnail sketch and you don't have to do a lot of kind of furniture moving, especially in a short story. Um, you don't have to waste a lot of expository energy explaining who the, exactly, you don't need to tell people who the Reich are, or who the French <laughs> resistance are um, right. for the most part. Um, yeah. And, and coming at it, I think through, you know, I, I would I would be daunted, I think, to write about um, World War II um, in in its larger aspects. Coming at it from this very small aperture of just the Portuguese mm-hmm. um, role, and just like what it looked like in Lisbon at this particular moment, um, to me felt like, well, I can I can certainly look at it through this particular keyhole. Yeah, absolutely. Would you tell us how you went about writing the city? Like, you know, 75, 80 years in the past, did you have to do a lot of research? Um, I did. I mean, I did do, I did do a fair amount um, of, of research. And there, um, there was, um, there was a, there's, there's a book that's specifically about this time by um, the writers, Neil, Neil Lockery. I think it's just called Lisbon. Um, and it has something to do, you know, it says, you know, Lisbon, 1940, 1945, kind of the war years. That was something that I had read before I went to Lisbon, and then and then while I was there, I was of course reading um, reading Pessoa as everyone does. <laughs> um, also, um, there's this uh, Italian writer uh, Antonio Tabuki who lived in Portugal for most of his adult life, and ended up writing in Portuguese for wonderful novels about Lisbon. Um, one of them called Requiem, and another one called um, Pereira Maintains. Um, and Pereira Maintains takes place. Um, yeah. a, around the same time. Um, so there was a fair amount of reading that I was doing just um, just just around um, around the period. Um, but, you know, there was so much of it, too, that, um, you know, at least at the time being, Lisbon is in a, it's in a state right now of extended um, development, really, where a lot of old buildings are coming down and a lot of new things are going up, and it's really been discovered as part of a, um, tourist itinerary in a way that it hadn't been even 10 years ago. I mean, it's a different city from when I went um, in 2010. Um, but but still, it still remains that there's still a lot of um, places that I write about in this story um, that are still there. I mean, the stories are still there in those buildings and stones. And up until a, a, a couple of years ago, the Cafe Suiza was still there, uh, the Hotel Frankfurt you know, Rocio Square, the castle, um, a lot of these kind of big central mm-hmm. um, aspects of the of the city. I mean, the, the, the cobblestones are still the same cobblestones. <laughs> um, so, so some of that actually, I could walk around Lisbon um, and feel like I was still in the same space, essentially, that I was writing about um, in the in the piece. It's really. It's interesting to hear that, you know, the sort of com- combination of, of research and sort of real lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I taught a class a year or two, a short class about how to write like really rich settings. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing that I sort of lean towards is making settings feel really lived in, like there's right. sort of like life going on behind the scenes, right. like apart from your main characters and, the, and that life kind of continues on after the scene ends. And I think you do this so beautifully in Vigilancia mm-hmm. because this, it's a whole city. And you really managed to kind of get across all of the sort of like the grime and, you know, the people who work there. Um, I'm thinking about how in in just the part you read where, you know, you can see the whole lives of these other people who are sitting at the cafe with him. And then later when it's time to go, he, you know, we see them inside the cafe, they're, they're putting the chairs up and then a woman is, you know, dumping out 
mm. filthy water behind the hotel, like this sort of like real lived in city. Yeah. And I think, you know, like writers, uh, write, writing about places abroad, it can, it can be sort of like a film set. It can be a little flat. Right. And so I wonder just like, how, do you know how you pulled that off? Like, how did you make it so multidimensional and sort of avoid the, the pitfalls of, of writing a foreign city? Uh, well, thank you for saying that. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to hear that that, um, that comes across. I mean, it's sort of exactly the it's sort of exactly the note that I'm I'm hoping to strike is to make it feel like um, a lived-in place. I mean, I suppose I can um, lay some cards on the table here and say that. I mean, <laughs> I wrote an entire dissertation that was about um, that was about place essentially. That was about the novel in the city um, and the development of the modernist novel um, against the backdrop of urbanization. I mean, this is a, a subject that's fascinated me for a long time. Um, and I, I read pretty deeply that were just novels about places. And I think one of the things that, that um, one of the things that I took away from, from all of that reading um, was this idea that, um, that, that a place is not um, an inert or neutral um, sort of backdrop, that it's not seen, that it's not a scene, that it's like they actually have, um, you know, these, these living histories and also the way that they can kind of condition um the kinds of lives uh that, that take place there i mean i'm really interested in the possibilities of cities um and in city design and city construction and um you know there's there's just little bits and stuff in that story where you think about like the kind of wandering old pathways of the alfama district in lisbon and these kind of old medieval corridors and how that um and, and the contrast between that um you know that's this where the um the, the chambermaid in the story lives in this uh, this older dense section of the city um where the streets are very narrow and there's all these little alleyways and it's very easy if you're not a um a, a native to get lost there but it's also um the very intimate quarters of lisbon i mean the places where neighbors are so close side by side where you can almost reach across balconies that are across the street where everybody knows your business essentially mm -hmm. um and so to have her live there and to have her be so surveilled <laughs> just by her social world, um, you know, that's an important element. I mean, it's, it's not something that's commented on directly in the story. It's an important element um, mm -hmm. of the story, whereas some of the um, newer sections of Lisbon, and I say newer in the sense of like post-earthquake, so like newer might be, you know, still 250 years old, <laughs> um, Right where they have the more uh, in, in the Baixa and the downtown and where Rocio Square is, um, you know, it's a straight grid of streets. It's fairly regular. It's fairly open. That's where these big old cafes and stuff are. This is the place where you would go and um, and and meet people and be seen. And you know, I thought a lot about um, where certain scenes in the story would take place, and that there should be this kind of conversation happening between the place and the characters between the narrative um, of what's going on in the story and this in the, and, and the place where it's set. Um, I mean, I just, I think of that really as the kind of grounding of a lot of what I'm doing um, so that the place is um, every bit as important to me as the central character. I mean, that's the Lisbon, um, Lisbon and this character M are um, kind of imbricated <laughs> together. I mean, mm -hmm. they're, they're this inseparable um, thing. So I think, I think for me, and part of it, um, how you not make it like a film set is I just, it's inconceivable to me to think of it as a, <laughs> um, as a film set. Like I, I want it to feel, um, as much a part of the, of the conversation of the story as the characters do. I guess it's, uh, no surprise that it was such a good fit for our magazine, that, <laughs> you know, um, Oh, with our focus on, on place. It's why I sent it, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad you did. Um, I was going to ask you, you and I worked together on some revisions to this story before publication, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that you revised it a lot on your own, even mm -hmm. before you did submit it to us. Okay. Would you talk a little about that process and like how different the final version is from, from where you started? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I got back from Lisbon um, in 2016, and really just out of um, the kind of flurry of all that experience i mean you've you've been to disquiet yourself so you know what that two weeks is like <laughs> um and you're just um it is just morning until late late in the night where it's just full of readings and conversation and the city itself and meeting points and miradorus and um and and i came back from that 
Um, and of course, I mean, I just missed it terribly. You're just like, well, this is what life should be like all the time. Uh, I mean, I also needed to sleep for like a week, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but then, but then after that, um, I just, I sat down and I wrote the first draft of this story in probably about six weeks. Um, I mean, and just out of a haze of, of trying to recover and preserve some of what I felt like I had experienced there. Um, and then over the course of, um, several years. I mean, I tend to write stories in um, uh, the first draft of the story in a couple months and then put it away for a while. Um, and I find that then coming back to it, um, even, you know, six months, a year later, it's like, um, it's, it's like had this opportunity to sort of age. <laughs> and I've also, I've lost some of my initial um, kind of preciousness about certain things or moments, and you can kind of see what they fit. But um I think over the course of the years, what ended up happening was, I mean, I'm a pretty big believer in the big kind of maximalist draft where you try to fit every part in and you try to see, um, you try to write through every little tributary that the story offers you. Um, Because I think you come upon some interesting discoveries that way and things that kind of elude whatever your initial plan was. Um, And then the latest last drafts, the last couple of drafts are just absolute hacking away <laughs> at the maximalism so the last couple are just a minimal thing so by the time it got um to you um and the stuff that you and i were working on um i mean i think the biggest change would be it just got shorter i mean i think almost everything i've ever published has been about half as long as my kind of original draft <laughs> and i think this story is a, is about that way too i think i think it just got cut not quite in half, but but very close. Um, and and so and but I think to me, I mean, that's just like, um, like as you just take away and take away and take away, and you just see what is absolutely essential to the functioning of the story. Um, then I think you really do start to realize that you don't um, that there's a lot of things that you're convinced that you need, and that the reader is going to need that they really that they really don't. I mean, if they'll they'll come along on the journey with you with actually very little uh, backstory and exposition um, if they're they're interested in whatever the kind of deeper conflicts are. Yeah, I I agree. I think that that we recommended a few cuts and that you came back to us with a a version that was even more cut than we had recommended. (laughs) And it was wonderful. It was great. (laughs) Right. That is, it's like the final, the final process is really just finding out what can, what can go. I mean, I allow myself a lot of leeway for a very long time. Um, and then it's like, and then it gets very serious about what <laughs> needs to go. So yes, when you say, you know, cut a thousand words, I'm like, you know what, I'll cut 2000. <laughs> <laughs> Probably we should all have those instincts. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the end, I think you, I think it's, I think it's all about timing. I mean, I really think that you need to let your, I think you need to not rein it in for a very long time. Cause that's how you end up with, finding these odd scenes or odd moments with characters that you just didn't anticipate. Like I never think a story is done until it's eluded whatever my initial idea of it was like until something else has appeared in it that I wasn't expecting. That to me feels like I've really gotten somewhere because I've surprised myself. And then at the end you need to be absolutely ruthless, but you can hold off being ruthless for a long time. That's true. That's true. I know, like, I really enjoyed working on the story with you because I think we were working on it last summer, obviously, everyone mm-hmm. in lockdown and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I had planned to spend some of that summer right. in Lisbon, right. As had <laughs> hope, I. Yeah. hoping to return after, after yeah. going to the Disquiet Literary Conference the year right. before. And so I think it was like, it was as close as both of right. us could get to being in Lisbon was <laughs> spending right. time in the story. Right. This was our, like our, our Lisbon hologram for a little while. I enjoyed, I really enjoyed the work that you did, that you did on it and, and allowing me to continue to exist in this space for a little longer. It did felt like, it did feel a little bit like, well, we can't have Lisbon this summer, but I can, I can try to reapproach it through finding parts of this story that I'm still attached to. Yes. And someday we will all go back. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. I think my favorite scene in the story is when M tries to warn the French couple that they're in danger and and their interaction is is so quiet. It's almost kind of mundane. And I love how that undercuts what could be, you know, a melodramatic moment like we've seen in movies with spies and things like that. And I think, you know, we, we carry so much of the drama and stakes of World War II in our sort of collective memory that, you know, it doesn't need to be bigger. It needs to be in a, in a way kind of quieter and smaller. Could you talk about how that scene came together? You know, I, I, 
the thing I, it's so interesting that you um that you that you hone in on that scene i think it's also my favorite scene in the um oh, nice. in the in the story and i think what's so strange about that um is that i think that of any scene in the story that one maybe has the fewest changes between when i originally wrote it between first draft and final draft of any other scene there i mean there's so much else wow. that changed that shortened that got to, but that one, in a way, sort of showed up and stayed. It might have gotten a little shorter, but I think for the most part, it showed up kind of whole cloth and then just sort of remained. I mean, that that happens. That happens very rarely. Um, but I think it. I think somehow um, that was a sign to me that 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 there was something in the story that was functioning pretty well because when the conflicts are set up in the right way then the scenes can take on um, this kind of menace or meaning or anticipation um, in the smallest details um, without you having to do a ton of kind of screaming about it, right? Like that it'll be there because it's just extant. It's just imminent in the, um, in the interaction. So, you know, actually after, after seeing um, this, this French couple more or less kind of off stage the whole time. And you, sh- you hear them talked about endlessly and then they, mm-hmm. here they are, they kind of show up and we, we know them and, and the conversation they have, I just, it's, um, it is all kind of innuendo and it's all them sort of feeling one another out. Um, and I mean, I wish I could say um, exactly why it is that that particular scene showed up and then just sort of stayed in its original form because it would make my work so much easier. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's, it's just a very rare, uh, it's just a very rare thing. But I think maybe that was the signal to me. You know, there's plenty of stories that I start and I start working on and, um, and I abandon or they get stuck or I, I finish a draft and I just feel like it's not really working. And then, and then maybe it goes by the wayside for a while, but um maybe that to me was actually a signal that there was something here that was, um, that was operative in a way. Um, yeah. So it's, it's just a great moment for, for M's character. I think, you know, in so many other scenes, there's so much complexity and I feel like mm-hmm. in this one, you know, we know exactly why he's warning them and, right. and, and it's nice to see, you know, I mean, he's, right. he's a complicated character and right. you're glad right. to see him in that moment. Yeah. I love that when, when things sort of stick around from the first draft. Yeah, isn't that strange? Sort of, I mean, it, I love it. Could, <laughs> if, if you could say why, um, and it's it's also great to get that feedback from somebody who's reading it and says, you know, what part I really love, and you're like, like that's the part that I really thought was working. <laughs> like, you really you spend so much time living in your own head um, that to hear something that you more or less thought about the piece confirmed out loud by someone else um, feels like, oh, good, maybe I'm not insane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You wrote a piece for the Los Angeles Review of Books a few years ago about sort of reading Lisbon through Pessoa mm-hmm. and, and other books. And when I read it, I was struck by how some of the authors and translators that you mentioned in that piece are now published right alongside you in this portfolio mm-hmm. of writing from the Lusosphere that the Common published. Is that is that weird? Is that wild? It's terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was. My first thought was it was actually terrifying. I mean, you think, um, you know, I when you're writing these things in the privacy of your own computer <laughs> uh, and you sort of close up the laptop um, and, and you sort of walk away from it and, and it's all part of your imagination. That's one thing I think, um, you know, to write about Lisbon um, in a way in front of people who've lived their whole lives in Lisbon um, is all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're responsible for a lot more um, than, than maybe you were, uh, <laughs> maybe you were imagining. Um, and to me that, that, that was really, um, I was like, Oh, this is, this is real now. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, Portugal is part of my family. Um, it's, it's part of my family history. Um, it's, it's a place that I've, um, that, that I've thought about a lot, read about a lot and, I've, um, always wanted to have, um, you know, a sort of deeper connection to than I really, um, um, than I really do in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the, the, to be included um, in this portfolio alongside these writers that I've been reading now for years um, and really ad- admired, I mean, um, you know, Susanna Marquez's book, um, uh, Now and at the Hour of Our Death, it's really just one of my favorites. Um, Taylor Lindegar book, The City of Ulysses, um, 
there's just so much other great, I mean, and also just people that I had been in, um, that I had met through the Lusa workshop, um, just gorgeous essays, Una Patrick's piece in there, um, mm, Fatima Policarpo's essay. I mean, there's just so many beautiful, um, works and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a nice package. <laughs> um, it's just something that I know I'm going to keep on my desk for a really long time. Um, but yeah, it is, um, you know, it's a, it's a terrifying experience to write about, um, you know, this, this kind of fraught period of Portuguese history um, and have it be included alongside people who, who lived through it. Um, but, you know, I think that if you're not actually thinking carefully about why you're telling the stories you're telling um, and, and what, what are the ethical and responsible and meaningful ways to do that, um, then you're probably doing something wrong. So in a way, I think that the terror is at least kind of instructive um, in, in making sure you avoid certain kinds of exploitation or sentimentality or kind of easy narratives about the historical past. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely something we, we tangle with at the common because we're obviously always looking for really placey writing. And I think mm-hmm. we tend to get a lot of travel, travel writing right. and, and, and some of that does everything right. And some of it can be, you know, a little bit more of like the, you know, the American abroad sort of exoticizing yeah. things. And, right. Yeah. Right. I think I think right. At least having some sense. I mean, in a way, I think being a little bit terrified and and, and humble about it is um, is probably a useful thing to hang on to. I think it's probably not mm-hmm. something that you want to get rid of. I think you want to be asking yourself these questions all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Your novel, Last Days in Shanghai, is about a young congressional aide on a business trip with a sleazy congressman to China. Um, it has some amazing reviews. And I just wanted to read this this quote by Jim Shepard, who, who's a friend of the common. We love Jim Shepard. <laughs> he said about your protagonist, he presents himself as yet another innocent abroad for the same reason most of us do, to deny our complicity in the damage that follows in our wake. And that that really grabbed me because I'm I'm also trying to write about complicity right now, and it is so hard. <laughs> Would you talk about writing that that part of your novel? I mean, does that sort of relate to what we were just talking about in terms of like trying to write write a place abroad and really tangle with it? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely. I first I'm going to put a plug in for um for for Jim Shepard's um he has a novel coming out in May called Phase Six that I just got the galleys of, mm-hmm. and I'm reading now and completely enraptured by um and it is about it's about a pandemic, um, and he wrote it, I think, substantially before um, the pandemic that we are currently living through. Um, I know that maybe it's not everybody's thing right at this particular moment <laughs> to want to like dive into the fictionalized version of it, but um, but Jim is so good, and he's been on the uh, pandemic and disaster beat uh, forever. So it's not sure. out until it's not out until May, but everybody should go grab um, Jim Shepard's book Phase Six as soon as they can because he's just one of the greatest. Uh, writers we have out there working um back to complicity um i just i think i think about complicity i think about it kind of endlessly um i mean i think about it um in terms of you know by the time i've woken up in the morning checked my phone and gone to make coffee right i'm already complicit in this whole global system Mm -hmm. of you know (laughs) Of, of wage theft labor abuses environmental degradation like even if you got even if you bought the good fair trade coffee beans, they somehow had to get to you with fossil fuels. They were mm. probably put on a shelf by an unvaccinated minimum wage worker who were keeping us all afloat, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you're complicit in an, in an inordinate number of these complicated systems um, just as a fact of your kind of like daily life and routine. I mean, that's, a, that's obviously a kind of a smaller um example but you're you know my own ability to just kind of keep on doing what i'm doing in a way um involves giant complicity um in structures that i know to be sort of abusive and unfair Mm -hmm. i think from a narrative position uh i think a complicit person is in is in an intriguing position i mean they're both in a way um the the character luke in in last days in shanghai you know i i thought about as somebody who exactly as Jim describes it, um, and, and I think probably more eloquently than, uh, <laughs> than I could have, right? Um, but I, to me, that book was about um, the justifications, the rationalizations that have allowed somebody to go on doing the work they're doing and living the life they're living, in a way crumbling all at once. And then how do you piece together 
um, your psyche? Uh, and then how does that change your behavior in the wake of that, right? Or does it? I mean, in a way, like, I think there's an enormous temptation to retreat back into what you were doing, to not see the thing that you've now been shown, um, to sort of come up with a new set of rationalizations or justifications for it. Um, so for, for Luke, it was trying to set up this drama that the novel just unfolds over the place of a week where it was like, this is the opening for him. He's been doing this. He's been living the life he's been living for a couple of years now. This is the small window in which he's been presented with something he in a way can't digest into his normal mm-hmm. rationalizations for his behavior. He's in a way like looking his own complicity in the face. So now what's he going to do? Um, and the window is going to close in a way, right? Like he's either going to take some action to try to extricate himself, to try to, in a way, like atone for things he's done, or he's going to come up with a new set of justifications um, that allow him to continue on doing um, what he's doing. I mean, I think I'm just sort of fascinated by a character like that or a character in that position because I don't feel like it's necessarily that divorced from myself. I mean, I, you know, the, the character, um, the character of Luke is doing things, um, you know, and he's, oh, first of all, he's working for a Republican congressman. So at least, you know, that's something that I've, uh, that I haven't done yet and probably won't do, but, still, but in a way, um, you know, I don't see myself as that, uh, as that distant, um, in certain ways. And, and, um, and I think that there's something similar happening with M, um, in the Vigilancia story, um, which is there's this moment where, um, uh, you know, as he's faced with trying to extract information from this maid who he figures out he has a deeper history with, I mean, she presents, again, a challenge to his own ideas of how he exists in the system um, around him. I mean, he has, in a way, his own set of rationalizations for it. Um, and those are put to a challenge. I mean, they're put to a test. And that, it's just something that I think um, it comes up, it, it comes up a, a lot in the things I write, I think, because I don't necessarily have great answers for them in my own life mm-hmm. um, and, and feel this need to continually explore them. That makes sense. Uh, one thing that I've been struggling with is sort of, uh, I mean, maybe it's just that you have to have faith in the reader to figure mm-hmm. it out. But um, right when you're presenting things like those like justifications and rationalizations that your character might have for behavior that, that the average reader maybe finds pretty horrible. Do you worry that readers will sort of encounter that and be put off by it? Like that they think you're, you're justifying something on behalf of your character that you also believe, or or do you just sort of have to take it on faith that they'll stick it out long enough to see that there is some, some change possible? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, you know, it, it, it is certainly, um, you know, having, um, having your book or your work be read as an endorsement of behaviors that you're just, just that you're describing, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's certainly a worry. I mean, I, I do I do take issue with um, with the idea that sympathy is only for the sympathetic. Mm. That to me actually does not seem like sympathy. <laughs> um, it's more or <laughs> <That's> less <fair. laughs> it's something else, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I do think it's kind of a it, it's it's a problem. It's something that I see. Um, but I see a lot um, in, in a lot of stories and a lot of novels, even even smart, well-written, good books. Um, you know, they, they've contrived the narrative in certain ways to, to render the characters, um, you know, extremely sympathetic um, in ways that, of course, kind of like demand the reader's sympathy, because how could you feel, how could you feel otherwise? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you only extending sympathy to... Um, nakedly sympathetic people that we're actually talking about affection, not sympathy. We're talking about something completely different. Mm, yeah. I mean, it seems to me sort of the same way. Um, you know, you need to make uh, when you're making peace, peace needs to be made with enemies, not with your friends, right? I mean, yeah. it's like when you're talking about peace treaties and peace talks, you're talking about disputants, um, and you're talking about like it real insoluble problems, but that is what peace is. It's like coming to those sorts of understandings. So I, you know, I think of, um, I, you know, I think that, uh, I just, I think that this is one of the things that fiction, um, 
can really allow us to do is in the in the privacy of our homes and privacy of imaginations like imagine the lives of people that um that we might not consider on their face sympathetic but sort of ask why they're doing what they're doing um and um and, and in a way like kind of be allowed to exist in that mm. liminal space along with them i mean i to me i think reading a uh, novel, you know, I'm, I'm not usually that concerned with this, this kind of sympathetic, unsympathetic dialectic with a, um, with a character. I'm not really thinking of a, a character in a novel as somebody, um, who I want to invite over for a dinner party or back when we still did that, um, or somebody that I would necessarily be friends with. I'm interested in just seeing human experience displayed. Um, and I, I think I really am interested in the justifications that people make for their own, um, behaviors. Cause I think, I think we, we tend to think, uh, you know, um, I think we, we tend not to always see, uh, the elaborate edifice that people have constructed around their behaviors that make those behaviors to them make in coherent internal sense even if from the outside they look horrible, yeah. right? I mean, I think a lot about, um, you know, one of my favorite novels um, for various reasons is Patricia Highsmith's uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Mm. Um, and Ripley is obviously a monster. Yeah. Um, but as you read along with him, one of the amazing things that she's able to do is just show you uh, the elaborate apparatus of internal justification that Ripley is able to come up with um, for what he's doing. Um, and I th- and I think it's often um, you know these are the stories that people tell themselves about um, you know like well I'm not the worst one or this you know I'm the, mm-hmm. my behavior is not as bad as these other people's um, or this is what you have to do to uh, survive or this is just the way the world really is or you know I, I mean I'm really interested in what happens um, when when the story is able to put pressure on those. Uh, justifications and sort of explode the story that a person has told themselves. Yeah. I think there's, there's definitely like a lot to be learned about ourselves as humans from reading those kinds of stories. And I think you make a good point that um, in our regular daily lives, we might not have the bandwidth to even Mm. like allow ourselves to, to think about uh, to think about those things and ask ourselves those questions about ourselves. So maybe the closest most of us can get without a mental breakdown is, is reading it in fiction and exploring it in fiction. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of the privacy of fiction in a way too. I mean, that you're able to, you're able to approach it, um, you know, in the privacy of your own imagination. This is not the same. I mean, it's just, I've had this conversation with friends a lot of times, like it's just not the same as having Humbert Humbert over for dinner. Like exactly. I don't want him as a neighbor <laughs> and I don't want to have social interactions with them, but I am fascinated um, at the elaborate justification um, and and the kind of aesthetic dodges and the crazy world that he creates to justify the horror that he's enacting. I mean, that is more that is interesting to me in a way because it's just like how do we explain um, how do we explain uh, like the, just the awful things that we see going on around us? I mean, I will spend time with him in a novel in a way that I never, I mean, it's not this, I just would never do that, obviously, in of my course, normal yes. life. There's no, I mean, that's senseless. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think I hope, uh, I'm counting on the fact that people will want to spend time with with unpleasant characters and that right. um, in a right. way that they would never do in person and that does not constitute an endorsement in any way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that to me is one of the, uh, yes, the, the idea that um, that you can sort of describe or explain without endorsing it seems to me um just one of the baseline benchmark um beliefs that i have about fiction and its purpose and 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 what it's there for and in a way like we get to enact these uh dramas in our um imaginations as sort of like test cases Mm -hmm. um without necessarily having to deal with uh all of the real life baggage of them right right right. this is what we're reading for yeah Um, no no real life harm was caused yeah exactly and it's it's also why we get to indulge in the fiction that this is all imaginary or made up you know 
um, then I think that's that's part of the, you know, that's part of the world that we've carved out um, uh, for fiction. I think is that we get to all pretend that it's um, that that it's just imaginary for a while, so that we can think through it uh, in in ways that would be, I think, harder to do um, in other circumstances. Yeah, for sure. Would you tell us what you're working on now? What's next from you? Um, yes. I, so I've been, um, you know, usually I, I tend to write um, short stories as a um, when I get stuck or lost on uh, my novel projects. So every uh, every year or two, I tend to write a short story as a way of just like clearing my imagination from the world that I've been um working on and getting into another one and you know short stories will enact a certain form of discipline on you too especially when you're writing a novel and you think i have all the pages and all the time in the world and the 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 reader's patience is going to be endless with me (laughs) right they're just going to endlessly indulge all of my fantasies here um uh, and a short story is like look you got 20 pages (laughs) you better wrap this up um so i i've been at work um, for years now, um, on a novel, um, called Mexicali, um, that's about the California, Mexico, um, borderlands where I grew up, um, and where, you know, my, my father's family, the sort of two tributaries of my, uh, family history here is my, my mom's family is all, um, from Portugal. Um, and, and around the same time they were on a boat to the United States, uh, my father's side of the family was moving um, out to the out to the border um, and settling in this what's now a, a massive agricultural region, the Imperial Valley. Um, but then, a hundred years ago, there was I mean just very very little there. Um, and so this, the novel I'm writing, Mexicali, takes its title from a, a the Mexican city that is just across the border from where I grew up. Um, and it's it's essentially about the um, the the history of how these towns um, came to be on kind of either side of the border, um, and you know the the period that I'm writing about you know takes place from roughly uh, kind of 1910 to 1930. Um, so you get to sort of see in in the real time of the novel um, all of this elaborate kind of border um, apparatus being built up. I mean, when my family first got there, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a giant militarized border fence. Uh, there wasn't a border patrol yet. Uh, most of the border immigration inspectors who were there were actually there to police Chinese nationals who were forbidden from coming to the United States by the steel enforced Chinese exclusion act. Um, so if you were a Mexican national, you could still cross more or less freely um, into the United States without, um, without any kind of documentation. Um, and, the, you know, over the course of the novel, that actually begins to um, change a great deal. Um, but, I, yeah, I've been, you know, I've had that, some of this is drawing from certain kinds of family stories. A lot of it is um, is, is a pretty deep historical dive as well. Um, the novel, I, I was talking about the maximalist edit. Um, it's in its maximalist stage <laughs> um, right now. Uh, I, I just gave that the big version to my, uh, agent and he's read it. And so now we're, we're working on the minimalist edit. So, um, so I think the better part of this year is going to be spent in, in trimming it down from the gargantuan size that it has reached. Um, and hopefully, um, hopefully it'll be somewhat completed at least for the next editorial process by, um, by sometime later this year. That sounds great. Um, is that a lot of research in, in, in it, the process? It has been. I mean, although again, um, you know, because it's because it's this place that I grew up. Um, you know, I, obviously the landscape and this and this desert landscape and uh, the agriculture and the canal works and the Colorado River and, um, and you know Mexicali itself. I mean, these are places that I know fairly well mm-hmm. um, in it in a kind of landscape way. Um, and I know the weather and I know the, um, you know, I, I know what it feels like there on a hot summer day. 
Um, and I know what it feels like when the desert is freezing cold at night. And, it, and there's, there's a lot there that I can draw on. It's just like the physical existence of being in that place. Um, and then when I go back and do the historical stuff, some of it is just, um, you know, trying to, trying to recover, um, a ton of history, mostly from the, the mostly like kind of Mexican history, um, that, you know, even though I grew up, you know, steps from that border, um, you know, I knew more about, you know, the Mayflower, (laughs) um, and the pilgrims than I did about the Mexican revolution. Right. Um, I knew who Pancho Villa was because his portrait was on uh, the wall of a lot of like Mexican restaurants and stuff, but it wasn't like who Pancho Villa really was, um, was something that was not exactly taught in your like California, um, social studies or history curriculum. Um, so some of that is just like, you know, the shocking ignorance of being um, an American who can grow up essentially just right alongside um, another country while still having very little idea of its deeper kind of political and social history. Um, so, you know, a ton of research about the Mexican Revolution that was going on at the time, which in contrast to World War II stuff, um, you know, the, the kind of major figures in that drama are, are not by and large just on the tip of the, um, the average American raised readers, mm-hmm. um, lips, you know, so there's a fair amount of work that has to be done there and recovering that. Um, but I, you know, and the, the history has been fascinating. I mean, the, the thing with research is it's also an endless form of procrastination. It you is. Can always, there's always another book you can read. Um, and there's always another library visit uh, that you can make before you kind of are sitting down to write. So I try to find a balance between making sure that I'm actually sitting there writing, imagining, um, and then also doing the historical reading alongside it, but not letting it become um, not not letting the research just become the, the project itself. Yeah, that that is a necessary step. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all of that sounds great. Um, I can't wait to read the book. Although I'm sure I will have to wait. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, well, yeah, I was going yeah, to say you can you can you know, pre-order it probably in 2023 or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm deeply hoping. I am deeply hoping that uh, that by the end of this year there's an acceptable uh, draft that is is going out to various publishers. That's great. Casey Walker, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great to talk with you. So much fun. It was a little bit like being back in Lisbon. <laughs> <laughs> it was great, Emily. Thank you so much. I love that. I love this talk and I hope that it continues down at, uh, in Lisbon at, uh, at, at the Disquiet's uh, headquarters, Kashusha uh, yes. and the other Bairro Alto bars. Yes. Someday. <laughs> someday. Listeners, you can read Casey's story, Vigilancia, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.